are listening to the Patriot Pastors Podcast, where we talk about today's issues from a pastor's perspective, as well as calling America back to the faith of our fathers. Pastors Wade Lentz and Harold Smith are your hosts, and now let's get started. All right, thank you for listening to the Patriot Pastors Podcast. You're getting ready to enter into the second half of our interview with Pastor Mike Stone, uh, with myself, Wade Lentz, Harold Smith, and also Alan Nelson. Man, it was so good in the first half to kind of just throw out some questions that we have received for Mike and hear him respond back to them. Now in the second half, we primarily want to deal with his role as the chairman of the executive committee. And uh, we'll be looking into some controversy that arose over the 2020 Pastors Conference, as well as their report that was issued on cooperative program giving being negatively affected by the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission. And then I think we close out this episode with some discussion on the need to revise or leave alone the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. So, so I invite you to hang around for the next 30 minutes or so as we visit with Pastor Mike Stone. Well, let's shift gears and talk about your service on the executive committee of the Southern Baptist Convention. Were you the chairman of that committee? Is that correct? Am I, am I missing yeah, there? Yeah, I was elected chairman in 2018 and uh, served for two one-year terms. And so I, I vacated that seat in June of 2020. Okay. Let's talk for just a little bit and I'll just, I'll just open it up and you can say whatever because I'm not that educated on it. I read your report that you were commissioned by the Southern Baptist Convention to investigate cooperative program giving impact. I, I, I may be miswording this all wrong. If the ERLC had any negative impact on cooperative program giving, is that kind of a general summary? And you, yeah. being being the chairman, you had to deliver this report. It wasn't your idea. You weren't going on a, uh, you know, on a witch hunt, so to speak. You were just doing the. It was for a time such as this. This is what you were commissioned to do. You did it. Yeah the the issue really originated with even entity heads and state executive directors across the SBC uh, who began expressing their concerns about the. Uh, what they viewed as a negative impact of the ERLC and its work in ministry on the expansion of the cooperative program. Um, part of that started when Dr. Ronnie Floyd was going to these various entity leaders and describing his uh, new strategy and plan called Vision 2025, a plan with which I agree, by the way. But part of Vision 2025 is that we reverse the decline in cooperative program giving and seek to return it to a nationwide uh, giving level of $500 million. It's uh, around the 460, low 460s uh, right now, talking about nationwide CP giving. As he began to share that vision with leaders across the country, they shared with him that one of the major impediments that you're going to have to reversing the decline and increasing CP giving is the work of the ERLC. Now, that's that's uh, people may disagree with that, and by that they may say, "I disagree that the ERLC uh, and their ministry is a problem." What what is an objective fact is that state convention and national entity leaders were saying to Dr. Floyd, "This is a major problem." By virtue of that, that activates a bylaw assignment 
that the that the convention has given to the executive committee uh, to look into these matters. So the executive committee simply did its job and formed this task force. I was not uh, I didn't initiate it. Uh, that uh, this wasn't an idea that I came up with. This is an assignment that the executive committee has black ink on white paper from the Southern Baptist conventions governing documents. We weren't overstepping our bounds. We were staying in the very center of our lane. Uh, I did not ask to chair that committee, contrary to uh, what you can read in a lot of uh, slanderous posts on uh, SBC Twitter and a lot of deceptive uh, websites that are out there. I did not appoint myself uh, to be the chairman. The executive committee, through its motion, made me the chairman of that task force. And we simply came back, went out, sought objective information, statistical data, and brought it back uh, to the executive committee of the convention. And and the reality is, uh, depending on how you calculate the uh, the ranges that we were told, uh, we could we could document right now between five and seven million dollars right now that is currently being uh, withheld, escrowed, negatively designated, et cetera, uh, because of concerns about the direction of the ERLC. And uh, if if Southern Baptists are willing to pay that price to keep the current direction of the ERLC, that is a decision that the messengers to the annual meeting have to make. That's beyond my pay grade and that's beyond the responsibility of the executive committee. Our job was to go out and find that data and bring it back. And that's exactly what we did. That, that's so typical of badness. They send someone a fact, they send somebody on a fact finding mission and then they don't like the facts they found. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and that, that, I mean, I just get tickled that, you know, you were mentioning earlier when uh, you were, when we asked you the question about the future freedoms of America, you said the only way to avoid persecution is to just not do and say the things that Jesus did and said. Hmm. It, it, it seems to me like you were given a task and, and what you discovered was an unpopular opinion or, or unpopular facts. And so people blamed you for it. Hey, Harold, there's a, there's a, there's a humorous story, uh, nestled in this because, uh, from all the reports that we got back from state executive directors, these are the CEOs of our various state and regional conventions. I would call them credible sources of information about money that's coming through uh, the work of the state convention and headed uh, forwarded on to Nashville. Uh, one of the criticisms of the task force report is that we didn't give information about all the people who are giving more money to through the cooperative program because they love the direction of the ERLC. That actually is included in the report with a simple statement that not a single state executive director reported that they have any record of a church actually doing that. And we acknowledge that that does not mean that no such church exists and that no church has increased CP giving because they love the current direction of the ERLC. It just means we don't have any record of doing that. And as I real quickly, as I told the executive committee when I gave that report, uh, when you're about $70 million down from your peak giving in the cooperative program, our assignment was not to go out and figure why we're just rolling in the money with churches who are increasing their giving. Our assignment was go out and find what the impediment is to this. Uh, when, when you're, when you're losing money, uh, like an open faucet, the goal is not to go find out, uh, all the reasons that people have increased their giving because apparently there are not a lot of those out there. You know, my, my first understanding that Mike Stone even exists was a year ago. 
uh, over a, year, a little over a year ago now. And that was uh, when you were on the executive committee. And I want to ask something about that in just a minute. I want to start out with this. You know, I found you nothing but approachable, transparent. Uh, one of the first emails I sent you, I thought to myself, this guy is on the executive committee. I'll never see an email back from him. You know, I mean, that's just they don't talk to little churches in Arkansas. Um, but you did email me back. And, and over the last, you know, 13, 14 months that I've interacted with you, Mike, I've, I've found you nothing but approachable, open, you know, what would you say, you know, in the Twitterverse, one of the one of the um, things I, I, I hear against you, well, Mike Stone's just divisive. What, what, what would you say to that, that, that Mike Stone's a divisive person? I'd say it's a bald-faced lie. Uh, I'd say it's a lie straight out of the pits of hell. And I can say that objectively. Let, let me give you just a quick analogy. Uh, let's suppose that, um, uh, Alan, that I found out that you were a candidate uh, for a pulpit here in South Georgia. And let's say that I know that pulpit committee chairman. So I go to him and I make up a lie about you. And I say that um, uh, that you have been running around on your wife, that you are sexually immoral. I just make up something that's absolutely not true and then try to use that rumor to say, well, it may or may not be true, but this man has a cloud over his testimony and his reputation. Surely you cannot call him to be your pastor. I wonder at what point is it legitimate that I benefit from the false accusation that I'm the one that made. Uh, And so you have people even on the executive committee who just simply have not told the truth. Uh, There are blogs out there and there are certain accounts on Twitter that they, they merchant themselves with false accusations and innuendo, they've never had the common decency or Christian courtesy to even pick up the phone and make a phone call. And apparently they either were not in the executive committee meetings or they don't know how to read the minutes of the meeting because it is objectively false. Some of the mm-hmm. things uh, uh, that they say, mm-hmm. I believe at the end of the day, it's uh, it's typical uh, ad hominem attacks. If we can't win the argument, we will attack uh, the person. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, from my experience, I just wanted to, you know, say that to you publicly and, and let others share. I, I find you nothing but, but absolutely transparent, open, willing to talk. And, and I've really appreciated that. I, I pastor a church. Um, last Sunday, we had about 60 and we, uh, that was high in COVID terms, you know, and so, uh, we, I, I'm from an association of about 16 churches. And I, I say this because I think it's encouraging. I'm a, from an association. I'm geographically in between these two guys. And I'm from an association of about 16 churches. The largest town in our association is about 6,000, maybe 6,500. The second largest town is where I'm at. And we're, at, you know, less than 1,500. We're taking our, from our association, there are nine pastors this year that are going to go to the, and their wives. Typically there's about two that go. So there's a lot of people from our association. And I hope that's true from all over the Southern Baptist convention last year. Mike, I, I was upset about the pastors conference. I didn't, and I didn't know what to do, you know, and so I, I talked to some pastors. Um, you know, one, one pastor is Tom Askell and, uh, emailed the executive committee and I was like, what's that going to do? You know, so I emailed. That was the first, my first contact with you. I sent you an email and, uh, and of course you responded to that. But recently 
And I appreciate that because the executive committee, and I feel like you've led the executive committee this way, the executive committee uh, works for the churches. The churches are the authority of the Southern Baptist Convention. So I really appreciate that. But recently it was said that the reason Southern Baptists were upset about last year's pastor's conference was because one of the pastors speaking at the conference was too aggressive in his evangelism. Well, that really, that really frustrated me because that wasn't the case. And, you know, I'm not asking you to get into all those details per se. Really what I want to ask you is, uh, if you have any comment on that and how would you differentiate between healthy versus unhealthy evangelism? Because one thing I hear you saying in some of the sermons you preached, the, the one that was live streamed last week or maybe it was earlier this week, you you seem to be a passionate man about sharing the gospel and about encouraging churches to share the gospel. So how would you differentiate if you want to make any comment about that aggressive evangelism? And then how would you differentiate between healthy versus unhealthy evangelism? Well, Alan, I appreciate the question. I did see the interview in which the president of the pastor's conference made the claim that the problem with the program from the 2020 pastor's conference was that one of the speakers was too aggressive in evangelism. And let me just be blunt. I I don't want to be unkind, but I don't want to be unclear that that claim would be laughable if it were not such a serious issue. And, And when I heard Dr. Youth make that statement in, it, in an online interview. I, I won't tell you exactly what I thought, but I but I will say this: it's just not so. Mm-hmm. It, it's absolutely not true. Now he may believe it to be true, but it's not true. And let me tell you why it's a false statement. There are at least a couple of reasons. Number one, I was a part of those uh, conversations, obviously chairing the executive committee at that time, and that allegation was never raised. There are 80-something people who were at that meeting, members of the executive committee, and not not a single one of them, listen to me, nobody said one blessed thing about, well, this guy's too aggressive in his evangelism. This guy's reaching a lot of people with the gospel, but but we're not comfortable with how he's sharing the the the, the message of the cross and, and the, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus and the bodily resurrection of the dead and repentance and faith in Christ. Not one man or woman on or around the executive committee said one single thing about an evangelistic approach that was too aggressive. And if you think about it, the idea that leaders in the most evangelistic, at least we claim to be the most evangelistic convention of churches in the world, the idea that a group of leaders is going to come together and formally pass a motion by about a 90% vote that say, we don't want this program because it's too aggressive in its approach to seeing lost people saved is absolutely ridiculous. It's one of the most ridiculous statements that I've heard from a Southern Baptist leader until I heard another one suggest that the SBC is full of closet racist and neo-Confederate sympathizers. It's just not true. The second reason that it's not true is because in order to be guilty of aggressive evangelism, it first of all has to be evangelism. It's not aggressive or non-aggressive evangelism if it is not first evangelism and filling your church programs with secular music and immodestly dressed people and and church members dressed up like stormtroopers grabbing their crotches while they dance around on the stage. That's not evangelism of any kind, no. let alone aggressive evangelism. Mm-hmm. And, and let me tell you what Southern Baptists ought to be concerned about. This is a classic case where we have turned baptismal statistics into a pagan idol. I've dropped a podcast on my new pastor to pastor podcast that, that 
dropped earlier this morning about an evangelistic emphasis trying to turn around the decline in baptismal uh, statistics in the SBC. So I'm I'm not opposed to counting baptismal stats, but we've got to recognize that that stats can only tell you what they tell you. Mm. And in many corners of the Southern Baptist Convention, we have turned baptismal numbers into an idol that's the same kind of idol that appeared on the plain of Dura in the days of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Mm. And and when I actually sat in meetings where when we were discussing the doctrinal implications of the utter foolishness of this kind of stuff, that the defense, and I mean the only defense was, well, this is one of our largest and top baptizing churches. And and Alan, I could almost hear the Apostle Paul rebuking Mm. the carnal Corinthian church and saying, I thank God I didn't baptize any of mm-hmm. you. And then under divine inspiration, he does remember that he baptized a small handful of those converts. Mm-hmm. But but your question about distinguishing between healthy and unhealthy evangelism, I, I think I've made this clear. First of all, we have to be sure that we're talking about evangelism. Mm-hmm. And I regularly tell our church that a lot of what is masquerading as evangelism, and I mean that literally, masquerading as evangelism is nothing more than man-centered pragmatism and, and sugar-coated gimmicks. I wonder at times how Jesus led anybody to himself, how he reached anybody without a good light <laughs> show and somebody softly playing the <laughs> oh, keyboard, man. underscoring his message yeah. of repentance. I, I, and I'll, 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 I'll let us move on to something else. But <laughs> I'll, I'll, just, I'll just give you a quick Bible uh, illustration of this. We're all familiar with the story in Luke 16 where Jesus describes the uh, Lazarus, the beggar who died and went to Abraham's bosom, the rich man died and, and, uh, was awakened in hell. And in the course of that man in hell wanting Lazarus to go back as a soul winner, we remember the words of Father Abraham and Jesus is quoting him. So I assume Jesus, the sinless son of God is not misquoting or misapplying Abraham's words. He said, they've got Moses and the prophets and let them hear them. They've got people who will preach the simple, message of salvation. And if your brothers will not listen to the simple message of salvation, they will not be persuaded by some razzataz presentation. Even if somebody rose from the dead, if they're not going to be convicted by the simple message of the gospel, your flashy presentation is not going to work. And I, I do my best to I try to prepare my sermons in an engaging way, and I know that you men do the same thing. If not, I just email out a manuscript of, a, of an exegesis of the text. I try to be a good right. preacher. But if you want to know what healthy evangelism is, if, if it's not as healthy and pure as an eight-year-old boy who's a Christian sharing the gospel with his third-grade classmate on the playground, and telling them that Christ died on the cross for his sin, was buried in a borrowed grave, rose again from the dead, and if they would repent and believe on Christ, they could be forgiven and reconciled to God. I know an eight-year-old may not use exactly those words, but but that's the purity of the gospel. And and if it doesn't have that as its main focus, it's not evangelism of any kind, healthy or unhealthy, aggressive or wimpy. So we've got to get back to just, just having confidence in the power of the gospel itself. I think Harold wants to say something, but I just want to cut in real quick and just say thank you. Uh, thank you for, for that response. And, and I've been listening to you preach and I've, I've listened to this podcast. And so I just wanted to say, man, that was, that, that hit home. So praise God for that answer, brother. Yeah. It, it is refreshing to hear that kind of talk 
um, from somebody who has served as the chairman of the executive committee. And one thing I've learned today is that the Lord has been gracious to me and not ever called me to serve on the executive committee because, brother, mm-hmm. I would not want to, for the service of uh, fellow churches, uh, part, uh, just take on, like you were talking about with the the things going on with the pastor's conference, the the um, report on the Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission, that is a very, very difficult uh, place. And I thank you for serving there. And it's always, it's always, always a joy to talk to you. You, you may mention about a, a podcast. You have a new podcast. Uh, let our listeners know, know the details of how they can listen. Yeah, um, my preaching podcast, which is just the podcast really of my church ministry here, is called the Emmanuel Pulpit. And we spell Emmanuel with an E, which I jokingly say we spell it the right way. <laughs> but if you search for my name on iTunes or Spotify, you can find the Emmanuel Pulpit. And that's my week in and week out preaching ministry. Uh, but I just launched a new podcast that's simply called Pastor to Pastor. And uh, my name is in the subtitle of that. You can find it on uh, different places where you'd get a podcast. I'm going to be dropping two episodes a week. And so uh, just real quickly, the, the first episode at the week, which will probably drop on a Monday or Tuesday, is just some pastoral advice, counsel about different things that a pastor may face. Won't have any particular connection to the SBC. Uh, that'll happen at the first of the week. And I will usually drop in a free outline or something that may be a blessing to help a pastor get started for a Wednesday night or maybe a maybe a Sunday Bible study. But then on Thursday, such as the one today, I'll drop a, an episode that really deals more specifically with some of the challenges and, and leadership opportunities that we have in the SBC. So uh, your listeners could go find that. I've got it linked on all my social media places as well, but it's just simply called Pastor to Pastor Ministry Podcast with Pastor Mike Stone. Well, I think we just got a few minutes left, Mike, but I, I wanted to ask you this. Historically, and how you define this, maybe some people disagree, but I think it's objectively true that historically Southern Baptists have been confessional people. 1845, there wasn't a, an official confession of the Southern Baptist Convention, but churches, you know, were all, all held to some form or other of the 1742 Philadelphia Confession. Uh, our, our statement of faith now is the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. Uh, I, I, I feel like what I've heard from you in, in the past and some things you've said, correct, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I feel like we're like-minded on this, and that is the um, we are unified around the gospel. I don't want to, I would never say that we're not. Certainly we are. But then we have the secondary issues that we have determined uh, are important enough to uh, dictate how we cooperate. And that is the Baptist Faith and Message 2000. And I just want to ask your opinion. If, if you feel like this document, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, is it, is it able to, de- to meet the demands of the 21st century? You know, we're as Southern Baptists, we're okay with updating our, our document. We've done that a few times. Do you feel like there are any revisions or additions that need to be made? Uh, should this be studied or do you feel like this is something that should just be left alone? We just need to adhere to what's there or, you know, does it need to be broadened in some way? Just want to throw that out there to you. Sure. I'll, I'll answer the last part of your question first, and it may surprise some of my friends, but I don't I don't see any particular need that the BFM needs revision as much as it needs to be embraced and followed uh, mm-hmm. by our national entities and our national leaders. One reason that I'm not in favor at this point, at least based on anything that I see or am considering right now, mm-hmm. not in favor of any type of revision in part because I'm not in favor of expanding it until we decide what the one that we have right now means and how that would be implemented 
with things like church planting and involvement mm-hmm. or uh, things of that nature. I do believe that it is sufficient at this point to address the needs of the convention. It's narrow enough to define who we are, yet it's broad enough to allow for some differences within a, a group as diverse as the SBC. Uh, I want to dovetail, though, back into something that you mentioned at the beginning of that question. Uh, and I think you stated earlier in this podcast, Alan, and that is that should we be united around the gospel? Absolutely. But um, denominations and conventions of churches exist because we've come to agreement on much more than fundamental, first-level, rudimentary issues of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, repentance, and faith uh, in Christ and Christ alone. The, the reason that a lot of Southern Baptists are not conservative Presbyterians, uh, with deference to my Presbyterian brothers, is because we believe in believers' baptism by immersion only. Mm-hmm. And so if there's a Presbyterian brother that wants to meet me for lunch together with uh, somebody that's lost and he wants somebody to help share the gospel with this unconverted coworker, man, I'm going to be all over that. Mm-hmm. But if he says I'm going to I'm going to plant this Presbyterian church, would Emmanuel Baptist Church put us in your budget? No, because and it's not just about that first level fundamental issue mm-hmm. of the gospel. You're now asking me to partner with you uh, from an ecclesiological perspective and to to train students and to uh, to build churches. And so uh, I think that we need uh, obviously we, we should be united with all Christians just in the essence of the gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Southern Baptist Convention exists because we've we've made some statements about things that are admittedly secondary or tertiary issues. Just just real quickly, I've never shared the gospel with anybody and said that you you have to believe, you know, Christ died on the cross, rose from the dead, repent, believe, etc. And you have to embrace the idea that only a male can be the pastor of a local congregation. I have never one time mm-hmm. included that in a presentation of the gospel to a lost person. But that does not mean that uh, that my church doesn't stand firmly on that and that the Southern Baptist Convention has not stood firmly on that. So when we raise these issues of concern, some will say, well, we just need to be united around the gospel. Well, that's a true statement, but it doesn't have anything to do with the issue that's being raised. That's right. The Southern Baptist Convention has statements about secondary and tertiary issues. I'll wrap the answer up with this as a humorous statement. We had some people in our church 10, 12 years ago uh, that wanted us to be a little broader in our church's doctrinal positions than what we were. And they, they came to me as a group and asked, how much freedom do we as Sunday school teachers have to teach something other than what Emmanuel Baptist Church believes? And I said, zero, zero. Now, there's some there's. There's diversity of theological position within my own congregation about various things. But I said to them, as a sarcastic example, I said, if this church has taken a position about the meaning of the fourth toe on the left foot of the beast in the book of the Revelation, then that's what every classroom and every teacher is going to teach. Because if it rose to the level of us putting it in our doctrinal statement, it's because we think it is important that that's what we teach here and nothing else. I afford that same freedom uh, to a liberal Methodist church. I think if you're going to go to a liberal Methodist church, they ought to be teaching liberal Methodist theology. I would not agree with that convictionally, but I'm just saying organizationally, uh, you ought to stand with what your group has said we 
believe. Uh, I think as of right now, the Baptist faith and message is sufficient in that regard. Uh, I wish we would give it a little more attention than what we do. Pastor Mike, thank you so much for joining us today. I know that you are very busy. You have a preaching engagement uh, this evening in North Georgia, and I know you have a, a drive. But thanks again for visiting with us. And uh, I would encourage all of the uh, Southern Baptist pastors who are listening and church members to make plans to join Mike in Nashville in June and vote for Mike as president of the SBC. The SBC would be in good hands with his leadership. I also want to thank uh, Alan for joining us here, the pastor of Second Baptist Church in Perryville. Uh, appreciate you joining us in this podcast, and thank you to all the listeners. May the Lord bless you.